the theologies that are behind all of this harm that was caused, the theologies that are behind the residential schools, the theologies that are behind colonization, the theologies that are behind all of the ways in which different European colonizers engaged indigenous people to try to convert them into Christianity. All of those theologies continue to be intact inside of the church, both the Catholic church and many, many Protestant churches. So what are they apologizing for if missionary efforts are still ongoing all over the globe? What are they apologizing for if nothing has changed yet? I appreciate that he probably meant it, and I would like to see changed behavior and some sort of reparations. Welcome back to yet another episode of Stranger Fruit. I am Donovan, and you are tuned into Summer School, our audio-only summertime series where we explore the last year across a few topics that we believe as black and brown folks, it is important that we are well-versed in. Where were we a year ago and where are we now? We have some really dope guests joining us for this series, so let's keep it going right now with Chapter 4. If this is your first time rocking with us, Stranger Fruit is a -a one-of-a-kind video podcast experience where you get to be a fly on the wall as some of the most brilliant young voices from the black and brown diaspora bring you unfiltered, thought-provoking conversations. As we move through our summer school series syllabus, we are exploring accountability, and this episode cut with a last minute switch up. We had a completely different episode prepared, but we just had to address the murder of O'Shea Sibley. Like many of us, I have been all in my feelings, just itching to find a way to get it out, but I am angry. I have so many feelings about what it means to be a black queer man at this moment, I am seeing very, very clearly that we are at a crossroads here. As the digital age is revving up speed, we are still having discourse over humanity just like fucking 2400 years ago when Aristotle thought of women as a deformity or an incomplete male who preached that men should always command and women should always follow as they are inferior beings created by God. And today, mostly old white men choose to expand governance to a woman's body, ultimately deciding whether or not she carries a pregnancy to term. This is some crazy shit, y'all. We are basically having the same fucking conversations now as they did then. The parents of O'Shea's murderer described their 17-year-old son as a quote, good Christian boy. Many holy books condemn same-sex relationships, and we are still paying the price of the historical scheme to consolidate power and move agendas forward that do not benefit humanity or create actual peace. As a community, we have to be introspective of how religiosity helps us and harms us, and accountable for the impact of our blind allegiance to white supremacist tools of division. And so this episode is dedicated to O'Shea as we explore the place of religion in today's society following the Pope's apology last year for the Catholic Church's role in the Canadian residential schools where more than 150,000 indigenous children were forcibly taken from their parents and forced to assimilate violently. And I'll pop in later to tell you about what some of the religious crusaders are up to these days. Shout out to Tommy Garvin, care director and co-host of Permission to Be podcast. Shanice Steele, Afro-Indigenous activist and educator. And Joe Lumen, theologian, writer and host of the Living Room podcast. And of course, my co-host, Constanza Eliana, who kicks things off. Let's go. 
this topic is very near and dear to my heart. I am a descendant of the Taino first contact people. And yeah. it's a topic that I think is pretty heavily avoided by the media because it is filled with a lot of violent history. But I'm excited to have a diverse conversation with our panelists. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a sexy conversation, but it's very necessary. Joe, I'm going to start with you. Let me ask you, is the Pope's apology, in your opinion, sincere? Or is this the latest attempt at the Catholic Church trying to save face or retain more attendees? I think that the conversation of whether the apology is sincere or not is, I mean, I'm sure that he meant it. I can't judge what he was thinking or what he wanted to convey. But the bottom line is that the apology is um, it's just incomplete, Apologies are not simply ways of people to just come and say, we are so sorry, that was really bad, and then be able to clear your reputation and the reputation of the organization that you're representing. But instead, apologies are supposed to be ways that acknowledge the harm done and repair that harm too. Apologies have to include not only the acknowledgement of failure or harm, which I feel like he it was inadequate in that way too. Um, like there wasn't enough acknowledgement. Yes, the residential schools are terrible in Canada, but the harms of the Catholic Church all over what we call America, the entire landmass today, go well beyond the residential schools in Canada. Right. Uh, and then there, obviously there were no excuses, buts, maybes, or criticisms, but the church in general has given up excuses and buts and maybes all the time when they are apologizing. And he didn't acknowledge that, that the church historically has given up, has given excuses for the behavior that they have engaged again, like with indigenous people all over the world. And I don't see changed behavior. And what I mean by that, because apologies without changed behavior are always manipulation. What I mean right. by I don't see changed behavior is right. the theologies that are behind all of this harm that was caused, the theologies that are behind the residential schools, the theologies that are behind colonization, the theologies that are behind all of the ways in which different European colonizers engaged indigenous people to try to convert them into Christianity. All of those theologies continue to be intact inside of the church, both the Catholic church and many, many Protestant churches. So what are they apologizing for if missionary efforts are still ongoing all over the globe? What are they apologizing for if nothing has changed yet? I appreciate that he probably meant it. And I would like to see changed behavior and some sort of reparations. The Catholic Church is worth billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. They could pay reparations to indigenous people all over the world, and they should. There is a steal in Spain, a ridiculous amount of gold that they owe people in Latin America. There is still a lot of different gold and art and different artifacts that are in the Vatican right now. You cannot apologize and continue to hold on to the things that you stole. <laughs> Nailed it. This is a perfect segue since you mentioned reparations. Um, we're going to get into missionaries here in a second, but a Politico article stated this week that the Pope didn't even broach the topic of reparations, nor did he commit to disclosing records that would help to locate the final resting places of many Indigenous children, in particular in Canada. He didn't say a word about revoking the doctrine of 
uh, Discovery, which is a 15th century papal um, edict that denied sovereignty to non-Christians, all non-Christians, which included natives. And there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of black and brown communities who are due their reparations for the last 500 years. So should reparations be simply left to governments or should we demand reparations from all who were complicit in harm? Shanice, let's kick it off with you. I think when it comes to reparations, I'm really looking for a check. I'm looking for land. I'm looking for something yes. from absolutely where is the point from absolutely everyone like I, i'm talking down to the generations i don't care if it's 10 generations after the people who owned my ancestors or the people who ran these schools or the people who were a part of colonization on these lands i want to check from absolutely everybody and i think that's what's really important when we're having this conversation around reparations is that It's not about just holding the government accountable, right? We understand that the government put policies in place, but the reality is, is that people put those policies in place in government. People supported these actions at the hands of other people, right? And so it's important to acknowledge that this isn't something that we're just looking to governments and churches to pay us back for. I'm talking about literally, like I said, the people who owned my family, where's my check? Where's my land? Where's the reparations that my family owes are owed that you were able to use to continue to thrive, right? Like I I was having a conversation with friends recently on what would it mean to meet the people who owned or the descendants of the people who owned your ancestors, right? Are you giving them a hug? Are you fighting them on site? What are you asking for? And for me, it was like, I want reparations for the next 20 generations, That's what I want from that family. I don't want just one check for me and my parents. Like I want from now on every generation after me to continue to thrive through reparations. I think when it comes to folks of residential school survivors um, and day school survivors, it's really on them to identify what reparations look like for them, right? I think what's really important around this recent conversation about the Pope, right? It's like folks were, I think, really conflicted on how people were accepting this apology. And at the end of the day, it's really up to them on what reparations look like for them, whether that's the apology, whether that's money, whether that's land, right? It's really up to those survivors. But I think when it comes to the larger conversation around reparations, it's really about every single person who had a hand in the oppression of your family, of your community, of your people, of your nation. They owe every single one of us a check and I'm coming for everybody's money. Get everybody's coin. Shanice, I want to follow up with you on that. I agree with you 100%. We've seen a lot of bullshit over the last several years, especially as we are coming into our like late 20s, 30s, some people in their 40s, and we're beginning to see the world for what it really, really is, right? Like we're not skipping around in our 20s trying to go to the club anymore. It's like, oh shit, this world is scary. And one of the things that I've seen, we've seen with like white boys going into churches and killing up black folks. We've seen a lot of people of color accept those apologies that you were talking about, Shanice, that forgiveness. Do you think that Indigenous folks, Black folks, brown folks should be actually forgiving these institutions or the government, or should they kind of like go with the flow of, no, give us some coins. We're not trying to talk to you in that way. We're not trying to ease your burden of guilt. You owe us something. How do you feel about this fact that we forgive so easily? Yeah, I think it's complicated. Like, I think healing looks different for absolutely every single one of us. I was having a conversation with friends the other day, and I was talking about, you know, when um, children are murdered at the hands of police, and you see sometimes parents come out and say, I don't want you to rage and protest, and I want things to be peaceful. And I was like, no, if it's my child murdered by the police, burn this entire city down, burn every 
single thing down, right? But that's me and that's how I would heal. And so I think it's really different for every single person. I think as racialized and indigenous and black folks, we've been conditioned to accept apologies from our abusers um, so that we can continue to survive. I think that's something that was very intentional and something that has been done and that we've been taught to do. And so, yeah, like I think part of it is this conditioning of you know, turn the other cheek, which is a big thing in Christianity, right? But I think a part of it is just what people's individual healing journeys are. Because I would say my grandmother is an extremely Christian person, but she would never tell you to turn the other cheek in an instant like this. So it's really about what does healing look like for you? And for some folks, it is an apology and I can't judge them, right? I might not agree with it. It might not be my personal stance. I might sit here and say that's not something that I would do. But at the end of the day, if that allows you to heal, who am I to tell you that it's wrong? No, I I completely understand. For me, I'm like your grandmother. I don't want to hear that shit. Save your apologies. I can't cash your apology. Y'all are still eating off of what you did. And I want to talk really quickly about that. And I want to throw to you, Tommy. One of the things that really irks me about these religious institutions and about whiteness, about colonialism, is this idea that these folks who led these organizations are civilized, right? They're good human beings. They mean well. They want people to come over to the other side, assimilate to a better way of life, and kind of ignoring the fact that these are the original savages. These are the beasts. These are the rapists that have spread this violence all over the world. And we have seen the consequences of religious institutions time and time again. We feel it to today because in the hood, there's a church on every corner and there's a crackhead there as well. Somebody make it make sense, right? So what is your take in general about religion and the legacy of religion around the world? So I I think my views about religion, um, they're not static. They're constantly evolving. I think I make a big distinction between spirituality and religiosity, uh, where religion is more legalistic. I think throughout the years, when we look at the history of religion and religious spaces, they're often intimately tied with the pursuit of power with, with government. So we talked earlier about the doctrine of discovery. Well, that was just in the 15th century when you think about In the 8th century, you had um, the reign of Charlemagne, you had the Crusades, the Inquisition, the War on Witches, the Reconquista. So like all these things that originated with what we call the church under the name of religion to um, basically grab power. I don't have any interest in that, but I do have an interest in uh, a spirituality that goes deeper, that that convicts us, that helps us to see our neighbor as ourselves and to operate from a loving place. And I think that was the foundation. I did a lesson uh, a few months ago where I talked about sort of the inception of the Christian church. And one of the points that I always like to make is... <laughs> The land back indigenous movement is a deeply spiritual um, uh, and right. If you're if if you're going in the original theology, it's right in in alignment with original Christian theology, because in the founding of the church, we were instructed to sell what we have to the poor, to take care of the poor, to take care of those without house, to sell our possessions. Right. And so that. Operating from a spirituality out of love, I think, is different than operating from the legalism of religion. Um, Specifically, especially, I think that takes the form today of like Christian nationalism in in our public discourse. 
Ooh. Christian nationalism. Oh, my okay, gosh. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, so I need y'all to go check out this article immediately in The Atlantic by Stephanie McCrumman called, quote, The Woman Who Bought a Mountain for God. It's about a woman by the name of Tammy Barthen who literally bought a mountain because she believed she was ordained to do so. She is part of the fastest growing Christian movement that helped Trump secure the White House and fueled his attempts to overturn the election. They're called the New Apostolic Reformation. The article is aggressively long, but it is riveting and terrifying, okay? Many of the bozos that are part of this movement are also some of the ones that stormed the Capitol, so they are exceptionally doofy, but the point is that they are making a very concerted effort to continue the legacy of conquering in the name of something holy, even if it means vilifying queer people or getting violent to achieve the agenda set by a select few who are deemed worthy. These people are claiming divinity without any prioritization of humanity, they have no sense of morals or firm grasp on what's right or wrong, but are very well versed in the allure of power and villainizing queer folks and now woke folks are par for the course. So while we are debating who owns periods or gay men voguing, these people are preparing for some type of war that they say is spiritual all while they buy guns, swords, mountains, and politicians. Black queer people are not your enemy, and we cannot afford to be distracted. Stay woke, y'all. Let's get back to Ileana. So I have uh, a very interesting and very personal story that I was remembering my mom when she was doing her PhD, she built her family tree. So to trace our diverse lineage. And one of the things that she noticed immediately was that there was a dead stop for her when she tried to trace further than 500 years, which I think was about five, six, seven generations, something like that in Puerto Rico, because the Catholic Church was keeping all of the records of all of the baptisms, the births, the conversions, the residential schools, um, you literally would have to go to Spain, to the Spanish church, to get any of the previous records um, of who they converted and how, what their original names were and what they changed them to. And she said it was a really, really interesting experience that she was pretty much like, okay, I can go back this far, but that's it because I would literally have to travel to Spain, to the church to get the rest of our information from our ancestors. And that to me is, you know, just another form of this type of violence that is inflicted still to this day by way of Christian colonization and religious colonization. So much so that I don't think enough people know about that. I don't think that we have a really deep conversation around what are the implications, even if it's been 500 years, that continues to this day. So I would love to know, Joe, as a theologian, what are your thoughts on that? Like, why do you think the church is so obsessed with keeping records of indigenous people and not giving them to us. I mean, that would be a tiny form of reparations. Why do you think they are still holding on to that so tightly? I think that there are probably a myriad of reasons, but I can think of a few. One of them is that they are a batch of honor, according to their theology. So according to their theology, every single convert is 
fruit that they are producing for God, and God is going to uh, reward them once they die in heaven for every single convert, regardless of how they converted them, regardless of the abuse that they subjected them to, regardless of what happened to these people after they were converted. The bottom line is that they are doing the work of God, and that is the way that they prove that they are doing the work of God, because we have certain amount of converts. Um, and I think that that's one of them. And the other one is power. Information is always power. And whether they are completely aware of how much power there is in this information or not, I don't know. But when we start reconnecting with our ancestors and when we start having information about where we come from and who we are and who our people were, we start to behave according to that information. We start to behave according to who our people were. We start to reconnect with our the yes. ways, there are the ancestral ways in which we were that are hidden really in our DNA. If you know anything about epigenetics, all of these ancestral ways are hidden in our DNA. And all of those ways oppose the power and abuse and obsession with control of the toxic church. They do. And once you have people that are reconnected with their ancestors and people that are healing, the church ceases to have power over those people. Free people are people yes. that don't need the church. And having people that you can control means also controlling how much information they have access to. If you think about it, indigenous people weren't given access to the Bible uh, because that was information that they didn't want indigenous people to have. Black enslaved people were given an adulterated version of the Bible called the Slave Bible that removed 90% of the of what we call the Old Testament and 50% of what we call the New Testament. All of the references that could be seen as liberation, as reparations, as freedom, all of those things were removed because, again, information is freedom. And so keeping information from people that they have abused and that they have enslaved in one way or another is a way to continue to have control. And also it's a badge of honor amongst them. I think that those are two main reasons why they will what they would do that. And they also have to admit that they've wronged all of these people. And I honestly believe that they don't think so. They think that converting indigenous people, you can talk, I have conversations with Christians every day, all day. They believe that converting indigenous people all over the world uh, to Christianity was doing a favor to them, was quote unquote, civilizing them because white supremacy and Christianity are supremacy culture in general, but white supremacy specifically and Christianity are deeply, deeply entrenched. Christianity has been used as a weapon of oppression and it's a very, very effective weapon. So they continue to hold on to the weapon, but want the weapon to look a little bit nicer. So they are putting flowers and painting the weapon so that right. it would pink, cute, and adorable by doing these apologies, and it continues to be a weapon that is destroying us. Yeah, absolutely. Because, And this isn't the first time that the Pope has apologized. In 2015, I believe he went to Bolivia or somewhere right. yeah. where he... Yeah, where he attempted to apologize to them and essentially said and did the same exact thing there in 2015 that he just did in Canada. So it really seems like just another form of thoughts and prayers, but we're not really going to do much about it. Tommy, what do you think about that? You know, <laughs> I, I was just sitting here trying to to formulate it all. Um, and And for me, I think what might be helpful is the way that I approach a lot of how I, I view things today is through the lens of the body. 
um, and also through a lens of understanding power. And I work with a lot of churches and pastors and leaders trying to figure out what do we do? Like, how do we operate in this posture of repentance, right? And so I think we live in a country where it's easy to say the words, um, much more difficult to have the embodied action. And what I mean by that is, is what's happening in the body, like when these apologies are happening, right? The Pope is in a position of power. When I think about whiteness, whiteness doesn't like to concede that it was wrong. It likes to plow through. And, sure. and, right? and, so, yeah. Yeah. and so it's interesting to me when we use terms like savages and all these other things, because that can be any one of us if we're approaching it from a body and embodiment perspective, meaning that we are all programmed for flight, uh, fight, freeze. We're programmed for survival. And so if these apologies, if true apologies threaten the survival of these institutions and these institutions are ran by people, I think we can expect a deeply human response. I think we can expect to see a fight back. We can see pushback. We can see that denial happening. That's what happens when we feel things that we don't want to feel. We want to get away from those things. And so my question is, how do we lean into that? And I think it looks different when holding institutions accountable versus holding uh, people accountable and building relationships in which we can grow and expand, right? And so that might mean that some institutions need to die, Um, it's the, yes. it's the right? There we go. That's it. <laughs> like, <Right>. Period. <laughs> go away. <laughs> right. Now, some of my institutions might need to die. And this is, again, where I bring back in the spiritual versus religious. I associate religion with institutions, but spirituality is something that we experience in our body as a queer non-binary person and how the church has harmed me. I also think about how the church has harmed a lot of the Black women by treating them less than, less than, right? And so you're already in a society, in a country that's telling you that you're at the lowest. If we're thinking through like a cast, you're at the lowest, but then we go into our spiritual spaces that's supposed to nourish you and you get continually beat down. So it's not a surprise to me that we start, we're starting to see um, people leave the church, people not wanting to have to do anything with the church. And I don't think that the church is the building, I think is the people. And so maybe we won't call it the church coming uh, in, in the future, but if the institutions are to remain around, I think that they have to get very serious about reparation, have to get very serious about owning their history and the implications of that trauma passed down that lives in our bodies, if we're really gonna fix this. Special shout out to Joe, Tommy, Shanice, and my co-host, Constanza Eliana, for joining me for this one. And thank y'all for listening. Let us know what topics you want us to cover for season two on our socials. You can find us at The Stranger Fruit on Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. Be sure to leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed this episode and come through next week for the rest of our summer school series right here on Stranger Fruit. Until next time, be kind, be curious, and be fruitful. Peace.